Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Lie Like a Rug, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in March 2018. In our first story, Jody Benton just wants to celebrate her birthday with her new boyfriend, but this requires lying about her whereabouts to all of her family. So this story takes place between in 2000 between 2005 when my boyfriend Dan moved from Chicago to Grand Rapids and 2007 when I moved from Chicago to Grand Rapids it was around my birthday and I don't remember which year it was but all I wanted for my birthday was to go visit my boyfriend in Grand Rapids. Now, if you know the life of a pastor, our weekends are in the middle of the week, but often we don't get weekends. I had one day, my birthday, that I actually could get away to go to Grand Rapids to see my boyfriend. And I put boyfriend in quotes because while I knew or thought I knew what was coming, and, and I thought that Dan knew what was coming. No one else knew that we were boyfriend and girlfriend. So it was going to be a trick. My Chicago peeps at the church, we celebrated all the time. So the Sunday before, the Sunday after, the whole month of my birthday. In fact, it's still the month of my birthday. Let's celebrate. <laughs> my daughter who lived in Chicago, my high school-aged daughter, Kayla, was pretty easy. She's busy like high schoolers, right? So I just said, I'm going to Grand Rapids. She's like, super, go, Mom. She won't be looking over my shoulder. <coughs> the Grand Rapids people were another story. So my parents lived in Grand Rapids, and they still haven't forgiven me for becoming a pastor and not being available on the weekends. <laughs> and... If I visit with my parents, it's, well, it's just interminable. It's a five-course meal. It's the, you know, life story of my mother's new best friend. And it's a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle. It's all got to be done before I can go. So this was not happening in a day. My other daughter was in college at the time, and I was mm, occasionally want to go check in on her unexpected. But I didn't want her to even know that I was going to be in town. <laughs> so I told her I was staying in Chicago. <clears throat> yeah. I am a pastor. <laughs> so um, the, the one consolation for me was that my daughters were not speaking to each other. The <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't funny to me. The youngest daughter had dated a friend of the oldest daughter, and the oldest daughter was so pissed at her she wouldn't talk to her. So I kind of thought maybe I wouldn't get found out. <laughs> so it's Tuesday night. My birthday was on a Wednesday. I'm packed up. I'm done with work. I'm ready to go. I hit the road. I'm excited. I get to spend the whole day with my boyfriend. Of course, we can't go out because if someone sees us and tells my family I'm in deep doo-doo, but there's fun things you can do at home, right? 
Dan's a great cook. So we are, uh, so I'm headed down the road and I get about an hour outside of Chicago and I get a phone call. And it's the oldest daughter, Nika. Hi, Mom. Hi, Nika. How are you? I'm fine, Mom. Where are you? I'm in the car. Not a lie, right? <coughs> well, where are you going, Mom? I said, who wants to know? <laughs> she said, Mom, I thought you were staying in Chicago. I said, Nika, it's really bad reception here. I can't hear you. I'll call you later. I hung up. I asked forgiveness. So now I'm thinking, oh boy, what happened? This is this could be a problem. This oh, how, mm, did they talk? Why would they talk? This can't be happening. It's gonna ruin my day. And uh, so I'm in a ruminating mode. And about a half an hour down the road, I get another call. It's my youngest daughter. <laughs> Hi, mom. How are you? I'm fine, Kayla. How are you? I'm good, but I'm a little confused. You told Nika that you were going to be in Chicago. You're not in Chicago, are you? I'm like, Kayla, the reception here is really bad. You're breaking up on me. I can't hear you. I'll call you later. And I hung up. Now I know I'm in really big trouble. So I got to figure out what to do. And the rest of the ride to Grand Rapids, I kind of ruminated on that and thought about it and, you know, the options are to hold my lying ground, or lying rug, or to fess up. So I decided to talk about it with my boyfriend. And so we, um, we had a great evening, and we had a great day the next day. And during the day, we chatted, and I said, so you think you might be ready to be outed as my boyfriend? And he said, I would be honored. So on my way home to Chicago, I told my daughters, I called each of them and told them, so here's the deal. I have a boyfriend. They were very excited. After four years, almost five years of being single after divorce, not really dating, they were really jazzed that I was finally seeing someone. And the really cool news is that it's been eight and a half years now since my boyfriend Dan and I got married in Assisi, Italy. <clears throat> Thank you. He's here, by the way. <clears throat> so I did say I'm a pastor, right? You know, we don't think too much of lying. And yet the reality is that none of you know how much of that story is true. <laughs> Doesn't every family have that one relative who makes everyone's life difficult? In the next story by Dave Murphy, this relative was Uncle Asshole, a man with a penchant for lying. So many memories of family, so many times together with family, 
so many miserable bastards. <laughs> you knew that was coming because you've got family, right? Uh, this story is going to be uh, largely about a character I euphemistically refer to as Uncle Asshole. <laughs> and this is a literate audience, so you know what euphemism means. It, it means that that's the nicest way that I can refer to this particular asshole. <laughs> Uncle Asshole was my mother's younger brother, much younger brother, and I don't remember much about him as a kid. He was 15 years younger than my mother, about 20 years older than me, and he disappeared from my hometown of Sault Ste. Marie up in the UP when I was a very young kid. He'd come and go once in a while, not a very uh, likable guy, and I just didn't know much about him. Um, shortly after I moved away from the Sioux as a young adult, he moved back to the Sioux, so that was good timing for an unsavory <laughs> character. But he, um, he endeared himself to me just a little bit one time on a visit when he said that far and away my mother was his favorite family member. Uh, my mother had eight younger siblings, and yes, my grandparents were Catholic, um, and they, uh, the, the kids weren't very fond of their mother. And my mother, because she was the oldest, that was their favorite sibling. And in fact, many of them kind of looked at her like a second mother. So that made me feel a little bit better about Uncle Asshole. Um, the, and I should mention a little bit about my grandmother in this story because she plays into it at a point in time. Um, my grandmother was very vital. She lived alone until she was about 88. She had a little apartment in Sault Ste. Marie. It was government subsidized. She didn't have many resources. But uh, my uncle was always butting heads with her. There were always problems with her. Some, at a point in time, as my grandmother was getting into her late 80s, my mother hit about 70 years of age, and her life kind of started to go south. She had some physical problems. She had an old house, the house that I grew up in. It was oversized for her. It was falling apart. Um, and the most challenging part of all was she was caregiving for my brother. My brother lived in St. Ignace about an hour away, and he was a single parent of three teenagers, which would require caregiving in itself, but he also had cancer. So my mother was over there with frequency, sometimes several days a week, uh, always over there for at least a night or two a week. And when she came back, invariably she had trouble. Something was going wrong with the house, or there was a foot of snow on the ground, or the grass needed cutting, and she just couldn't keep up. So I was taking a lot of phone calls, uh, often crying, where she was just really getting to a very difficult point in life. So my wife and I came up with a plan, and I can't compliment my wife enough on this because she went along with trying to bail out mo her mother-in-law, but we decided to move my mother to Traverse City, and we did that even though it created a little bit more distance from my brother because we wanted to help her with all the needs that she had going on. So we gave her a nice upgrade in the home she was living in, and we took care of all the small tasks so she could go and be with my brother. And amazingly, that plan was working. And, and I say amazingly because none of my plans ever work. <laughs> but, but this plan was actually working. And she was so grateful, and it was such a good period of time for us until Uncle Asshole got involved. Um, my mother was up north taking care of my brother, and I got a panicked phone call from my mother, and she said, your grandma is packed up, and she's going to be moving in with me. And this was not at all expected. Uh, there had been some discussion that maybe years down the road when my grandmother was less vital and would need some help, 
that it would be good to get in with my mother, but not then, not then at, at all, not with my brother's needs and my mother over there so frequently. My mother was a great person, but if she did have one flaw, she was a martyr. And so she would take on more than she could handle. And uh, my first reaction was, she's not coming. We're not bringing grandma down now. And my mother said, uh, she's packed and uh, Uncle Asshole's bringing her. <laughs> and so um, she said, can you please help get, start scrambling at my house, try to get some things out of the way so we can move her possessions in. So I was over at her house and uh, hours later, my mother shows up from St. Ignace. She's coming home. And 30 seconds after that, here comes Uncle Asshole with my grandmother and all of her possessions. My grandmother gets out of the car and she lunges to me and she says, I did not want this. This was not supposed to be. Your uncle was so furious when you moved your mother, so jealous. He's such a bitter man. And suddenly my uncle jumps in his way. He starts roaring at my grandmother. It was one of the ugliest scenes I ever experienced with family. My grandmother was approaching 90. And here's my uncle that I don't know well and still trying to show some respect for him. I wasn't calling him Uncle Asshole then. Um, <laughs> just roaring at my grandmother. So uh, we get my grandmother in the house. We can't send her back with this lunatic. And my mother starts to play the martyrdom role. And she says, I can't send her back. I'll, I'll keep her. And uh, before my uncle left, he got my mother to the side and he said, whatever mom tells you, uh, she's lying. Uh, she wanted to come down here. And I never bought that story, never. Uh, if he was supposed to be such a good friend to my mother, why would he dump the grandmother, my grandmother, on her, especially at that point in time? So I really did believe my grandmother, but my mother never did. They had had a contentious relationship. She was bitter about this. And it really was a uh, tragic situation. My mother never again saw my brother until the day he died. And my uh, mother never forgave my grandmother. For six years, she was caregiver to my grandmother. So in uh, one short action, Uncle Asshole managed to disrupt with his lies the lives of a lot of people. And uh, as time went on, he kept visiting. And he just liked to stir the pot. He loved to see conflict. This was a nasty individual. He deserves the moniker of Uncle Asshole. Let's fast forward some years. My brother passed away. My grandmother passed away. It's 15 years after that ugly time in the driveway. Uncle Asshole has a heart attack. And guess where he wants to come to be cared for? So I spend a night and two days in the hospital with him, listening to him moan and groan about his horrible life, how he has no one in his life. And he especially starts picking on his oldest daughter, who is going to come, she lives in upstate New York, and she's going to come to see what she can do to help. And he's just bashing this cousin of mine named Kathy. And I had met Kathy once or twice as an adult. Uh, I, I very little recollection of her, probably wouldn't have recognized her if I walked into her. Kathy called on her cell phone to say that she was in the parking lot, could I come down to meet her and walk her up to see her father. And even as I was exiting the hospital room, my uncle just had to take a couple more pot shots at his daughter. So I got down to the parking lot and uh, you know how recognition plays. You see someone and you just know this is not the person they've been described to be. Kathy was a wonderful person, a massively successful career. Her husband even a more successful career. 
And she started talking about how she had the resources to move her father near her and buy a home for him. And um, imagine that. She was looking to do the same thing for her father that I had attempted to do for my mother, but her father sabotaged. So we headed up to the room. Kathy took over. It was um, nice to see the way she intervened. She was in charge. And she stayed with us for several days. And it was interesting when she said that she was going to do that, how much Uncle Asshole didn't want to see that happen. He liked to keep his lies separate. So Kathy and I spent a couple evenings together, and um, the stories we exchanged about her father were amazing. Um, if you have a negative opinion of the man, quadruple it uh, <laughs> compared to what Kathy shared with me. One of the stories Kathy was kind enough to share was she said she understood from her father how, her, how our grandmother came to Traverse City. Uncle Asshole told her that I forced my grandmother down <laughs> to get her money. Um, keep in mind she was in subsidized housing and she had no resources. I never saw a penny of the small amount that she had. So I have these details. I know that Kathy's looking to move her father nearby. And it, it's, it's interesting, the symmetry of life sometimes. Um, on the one hand, it would be delightful to get Uncle Asshole out of my life for good. So take him away. Take him to upstate New York where you're thinking of moving him. On the other hand, I like Kathy. And I knew what damage this guy could do to her life. And of course, there was the revenge factor. Would I like to engage in the same behavior that he did? And no, I would not. But there was a difference that I realized. Uncle Asshole did his damage through lies. I didn't need to tell any lies. I just need to tell the truth. So I did share the truth, uh, a lot more truth with Kathy, and it shifted her opinion. Um, she had talked enough to her dad before he was discharged that when he went home, he was preparing for the move. He started selling his possessions. He had a lot of gear, tractors, trucks, trailers. He started to sell everything to prepare for the move. Suddenly, Kathy said, why don't you slow down? Maybe not do that so quickly. Um, she cut the move off, but didn't nail it down that he'd never moved. And so he kept coming back. He kept coming to see my mother. My mother's health went downhill, and he um, managed to cause even more problems yet again. He didn't know about what our, the conversations with Kathy, but he uh, kept up the problems to the point that I finally cut him off. I said, this is it. I've had enough of you. Um, we're done, and you're done with my mother for life. Get out of my life. When that happened, he, of course, had to take the stories back to family. And I wasn't that close to family. But suddenly, they started to come out of the woodwork. They started coming to me, congratulating me <laughs> for axing him. And they started sharing stories. Two of my uncles, Uncle Asshole's brothers, had not spoken to each other in 20 years. They began speaking. They realized that their problems were caused by their brother. And all of them were coming to me about him. And one by one, they started to eliminate him from their life. And finally, Kathy gave him word, you're never coming to live near me. There is a saying that revenge is a dish best served cold. Um, I don't really like to think of this as revenge. I like to think of it as justice. But if justice is a dish best served cold, then I gave Uncle Asshole a major popsicle suppository. 
In the next story, after a split decision to lie about where he's from backfires, Daniel Stewart is certain he'll never lie about his background again. So when I went away to college for my first year, and actually as it turned out my first college, I went to Miami University in Ohio. And Miami of Ohio is a really nice campus, but it's in a small town surrounded by cornfields and et cetera. So it is very quiet and very conservative. The story going the rounds when I, when I arrived was that during the great tumult of the Vietnam War era, when um, all the anti-war protests led to Berkeley being sort of choked with tear gas, and while students were actively being shot up at Kent State, that students at Miami of Ohio staged a coordinated, a coordinated simultaneous toilet flushing to empty out the, the municipal water tank. <laughs> but the thing is, when I went to Miami of Ohio, it felt to me like a liberation because it was, you know, it was, it was going away to college, so it was the first time I lived away from home. And the first time that I had lived away from the expectations of family and people who'd grown up knowing me. It was like, you know, it was that chance to sort of introduce myself and to find myself and to, and to be somebody new. Now, the first semester, especially of freshman year, was full of organized social events at my dorm. Um, and, and again, because we are surrounded by cornfields and et cetera, one of them did include a square dance. <laughs> but this one was just a regular sort of freshman mixer. You know, just sort of get together with other sort of nervous, eager freshmen. And at this mixer, I noticed this one girl. Um, she was just, she is just so cute. I mean, she has red hair and blue eyes and this really fair skin, and she looks athletic and really smart. And I have that sort of uncharacteristic courage to go over and talk to her. And as we're making small talk in these circumstances, one of her first questions is, inevitable. So where are you from? Um, first option <laughs> is to tell the truth. Um, here's the problem with telling the truth. The truth would be, I am from 25 miles away. <laughs> if, you, if you stand on your toes, you can pretty much see my house from here. <laughs> like, hi, mom and dad. So I chose option B, <laughs> to explain the exact choice I made for option B. I need actually to take you 25 miles to that hometown. The, the town where I grew up is small and really quiet. We are about one and a quarter square miles. And for some reason, we had our own police department. <laughs> or as my father, who was a deputy sheriff for the county, would say, our own police department. <laughs> I saw the police force in action one day when I was walking home from high school. And two police cruisers, which is to say all of the police cruisers, <laughs> had pulled over one vehicle. They had pulled it over and they had surrounded it. <laughs> and that vehicle was a scooter <laughs> with like a 14-year-old at the handlebars. So, to my mind, growing up here, this was a town where nothing ever happens. <laughs> so, I can't say that I'm from this really sort of ordinary, boring town. But one important thing to note about my town is that my town was ordinary, 
my family really wasn't. Um, you see, this town, and I mean small, we had about 5,000 people. And of those, about 5,000 were white. <laughs> um, you could sort of go through my high school class and pick out the brown faces. I mean, there was Cedric. He was the black son of the doctor. He was very cool. And the Filipino kid doing the very bad Scottish accent for our production of Brigadoon. <laughs> That's Dondi. <laughs> and then there's like me. And my family stood out because without ever intending to stand out because, you see, my mother is a Korean immigrant. My father's white. My mother's a Korean immigrant. So I have an older brother, and my brother and I were always these mixed kids. And you know, of course, people knew us because my mother actually worked in the food service of the local school district. When I was in middle school, she was my lunch lady. <laughs> so people tended to know us. But of course, there were people who didn't. And I would always be a little bit surprised when people, because, you know, of course, whenever any of us looks in the mirror, it's just always the same face. But sometimes people would look at me and they would have that questioning look and I would know what question they were coming to. Well, <coughs> um, the thing about America is Americans like to be able to figure out where people, f where people are in terms of racial categories. Like all government forms when I was growing up, all had like the census form. They had categories to figure out. They would be simple ones, white, black, Hispanic, Asian. Check one. I can't check one. Whenever I had the option, I would leave it blank. If I didn't have the option, I took the only option I could, which was other. So I was used to being other. When people looked at me, they saw other. And to be honest, they didn't, it wasn't like their fault. Because when you, if you were looking at TV and film when I was growing up, what you saw was almost all white faces and all the faces that weren't white were easily categorizable. The only place where people saw a face that looked like mine, and apparently everybody saw this one spot, was Hawaii Five-0. So when people would ask me, where are you from, they would always want to guess. And almost always, they would guess, are you Hawaiian? <laughs> so I'm at a mixer. And this <laughs> pretty red-headed girl is coming up to me. And I'm like, I just, she's like, where are you from? And, I, and if you've been an 18-year-old guy, or you've known any 18-year-old guys, you know, at times like this, the brain is generally strapped in in the baby seat in the back. <laughs> so she's asking me this question, and I hear my mouth saying, I'm from Hawaii. <laughs> and, she, her, and her face lights up. She's like, Hawaii, she says. And I'm thinking, oh my god, this is working. And then she says, me too. <laughs> yeah, I thought, oh yeah, I'm surprised too. Yeah. And it was after that point that I, that, I, that I just promised myself, 
okay, I'm just never again going to lie about who I am, which seems like a simple promise. Except think about what a lie is, because it seems simple. A lie is when you tell something that's not the truth. Here's a question. What if the truth isn't what you think it is? I encountered this a number of years later, during the summer of 2002. So I'm in my 30s by now, I'm married, and I feel like I have a pretty stable idea. You know, I've, I've gotten my PhD. You know, I feel like I have a pretty stable idea of who I am. And in that summer, my wife and I, who had been living in Philadelphia, in Center City, Philadelphia, for more than 10 years, uh, moved for four months to on a research trip to L.A. And L.A. was not exactly what I expected. I sort of thought, well, I live in a city. I'm going from the number five city to the number two city. It's not going to be that different. No. I was totally wrong, of course. Um, for example, I would check the weather forecast in Philadelphia. In L.A., it is always sunny and 84 degrees. The one forecast you need to check is fire. <laughs> because apparently the hills are always burning around L.A., and you need to check if you're going to go somewhere to make sure that that road is not closed by fire. Things like that. The buses smell different <laughs> in L.A. In Philly, they smell like diesel, sort of what you'd expect. In L.A., they run on compressed natural gas. They're not odorless, though, because a lot of times they smell like warm tortillas <laughs> because only brown people apparently take the bus in L.A., and the reason we're taking the bus is that we're city people. And in Philadelphia, as we see it, there's sort of two components of being a city person. First, you root for the Eagles, as required. And the second for us is that you have no car. So we got around by foot and by public transportation. And when we moved to LA, we said, we're going to get around by foot and by public transportation. And the thing is, it actually works pretty well. They have a really good bus system. So we walked for commuting during the week to the research library. And on weekends, we would take the bus to go out and sightsee. And when I say sightsee, I don't mean sophisticated stuff. I mean, we were just like total tourists. So one Saturday, we head down to Hollywood. And we were going to do total Hollywood tourist things. I mean, we're talking the Walk of Fame. We're talking Groman's Chinese Theater. We're talking Scientology recruiters. I mean. <laughs> We're going to get the full experience. We go into a museum and we walk, we walk on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. We walk through the bar of Cheers. You know, <coughs> it's getting later in the day. And there's sort of one place that's sort of on my map. It'd be really cool to go to the La Brea Tar Pits. I think a lot of boys, like, like I did, like fixated when you read in science class about the La Brea Tar Pits. If you've never heard of it, it's this place where there's like oozing asphalt. And over the years, like thousands of years ago, animals would get trapped, would walk into the tar and get trapped and die. So it's full of thousands of fossils of really cool extinct animals, like mammoths, dire wolves, uh, saber-toothed tigers, scientific name, Smilodon fatalis. <laughs> it is too cool to miss, so we're going to go there. Um, but we walk. It actually is farther away than it seems. By the time we get there, it's about to close. 
So we're sort of outside the museum, you know, we're not going to pay the admission to go in for the 20 minutes, you know. So there's one other place nearby that is sort of on my list. It's been in the back of my mind. It's nearby, actually, because if we just catch the bus down Wilshire, that will take us back towards South Pasadena. So we'll go through Koreatown. Koreatown, yeah, that'd be cool. I don't know anything about Koreatown, except it's full of like Korean immigrants, first generation. It's full of people who would actually look like me for the first time in my life. I should definitely go see Koreatown. So I say, we should go to Koreatown to my wife. And when I say that, something begins tightening up inside me. I'm like, and I realize something really of me does not want to go to Koreatown. You see, I don't really know anything about Koreans. There isn't a Korean community in Cincinnati. I don't speak any a word of Korean. My mother, like a good immigrant, wanted her kids to be American. You know, I didn't learn how to use chopsticks from my Korean mother. I learned it from my girlfriend at my third college. <laughs> this nice Jewish girl from the Upper East Side. <laughs> because we would go down to Manhattan on the weekends and it's full of Chinese restaurants. That's where I learned to use chopsticks. I can't go to Koreatown. As soon as I propose it, I realize I am not going to go. There's this exhibit that's outside the museum in the front. And it's, I, I, so far as I can tell, it's designed to answer the sort of the question about how could any animal be so stupid to walk into tar pits and get stuck and die? <laughs> it has this little exhibit. It actually has tar at the bottom. It's closed. But it has tar in various thicknesses and these little levers that go into these pistons that are supposed to be like legs. And it shows that when the tar is thin, you can just pull it right out like doing that deeper you get, and not much deeper, it gets sticky really fast. The last levers, when you pull on them, you can't get them out of the, you can't get them out of the tar. I'm not going to figure out while I'm standing there why I can't go into Koreatown. A lot of it has to do with the fact that I have not yet experienced what is going to come after 2002. I am, I have yet to experience an American who is like me, half white, who is actually from Hawaii, <laughs> who will have millions of Americans look at him and say, because of the way you look, I cannot be convinced you are a real American. I have not yet experienced a cop from that little police force in my hometown who will pull over in Cincinnati a black man for not having a front license plate and within two minutes will shoot him in the head. All I know is that I can't go to Koreatown and I'm standing at this exhibit and I tell my wife, we'll go later. Let's just go. Let's just go. And I just stand there on the levers trying to get some heat 
have at that talk. Thank you. Next, at a reunion, Leslie Ty has to confront that she had not been honest with a friend she'd let go of years ago. When I was 15, I went away, um, left my home in Colorado to go to boarding school, actually up here at Interlochen Arts Academy. Um, before that, I went to the same tiny little private school from kindergarten all the way to ninth grade. So I had some of the same classmates my whole time at school. Um, and so this was like a really incredible thing to go to this place where there were all these weirdos like me. One of the groups that I became friends with right at the start um, were, and you've got to keep in mind this is like 1990, they were true goths. They were so cool. They were like full on, like, I came from like this, like Benetton, Esprit, like pastel, you know, private school world. And then suddenly it's like these people who are into David Lynch and Crispin Glover and like we're... I remember one of those early um, times were out like running around in the woods of northern Michigan in the fall with a boombox playing Violent Femmes and The Cure. And I was like, I'm in a music video. This is so cool. <laughs> so um, one of those friends, um, I'm going to call her Sienna. Um, she was older than me. And um, she, was, she lived in the area because at least one of her parents actually worked at the school. And she was... Um, a bit awkward socially, but we all were, again, uh, at the time. She was kind of, you know, she was kind of short, stocky, kind of like me. She had, like, a short punk hairdo. She, I was totally, like, looked up to her. She was really cool. Um, she never wore a dress or a skirt. I don't think I ever saw her in a dress or a skirt, maybe once. Um, always in black and, her, like, her clunky Doc Martens. And I remember she had this nervous laugh that would come sometimes at, like, inappropriate moments. Um, those are the kind of things that I, you know, kind of took in from her and I, when I first met her. Um, spring break of that year, she decided um, we made this trip home. She was going to come home with me to Colorado. And part of that was because she had this pen pal. And I don't remember how she met this guy, this guy named Chris. I don't, again, it's like 1990. So I don't know if it was like a fan club thing or like a zine or something. I don't know. But she had this pen pal named Chris that she'd been writing to for a long time. They talked on the phone. And he lived in Colorado outside of Denver. And so she planned this trip home with me. And <clears throat> she was really excited about this. Um, this was definitely like a potential like romantic thing. You know, they were friends, but, like, I know I could tell she was hoping there was something more. And, you know, <clears throat> Interlochen was, like, a great school. I really loved it. But it was – we were teenagers, and it was I, – I was like her in that I did not have a boyfriend when I was in high school. Like, it was still really hard to find someone that you connected with. So I knew this was a really, really big deal for her. Um, and so she came home with me, and then we went to go stay with a friend of mine as well who lived in Denver – because it was still about an hour away from my house. Now, when you travel with someone and you're with them 24-7, you start to notice the kind of annoying little things that maybe you don't notice when you're just with them a couple hours a day. Um, she had this habit of complaining a lot, but like complaining like she would make these really snarky jokes. And, and she always did this, but it would be like about cafeteria food or like something that happened you know, with a teacher in class. It wasn't a big deal. 
But now it was like, you know, we went out to dinner, my parents took us out, and she would make, if there was like stuff on the menu she didn't feel like she could eat, she'd be like, oh, well, don't worry, I guess I'll just starve, or I'll just fill up on breadsticks. She would make these comments, and I, it started to really be like, okay, my parents are taking you out for dinner, and you're being kind of ungrateful here. And at my friend's house, um, we stayed in the basement, and um, it was kind of, you know, it was a finished basement. That's where, like, the pull-out couch was and extra beds. But it was a little bit colder because it was the basement. And she started calling it the freezer. And she'd be like, oh, every time we go down, oh, man, i got to go down to the freezer. i better put my coat on so I don't get frostbite. I guess she thought she was funny, but it just started to really annoy me. My friend's parents, like, did not know this girl, and they were opening their home to her, and she was just saying all these comments. And she also had this, she was complaining the whole time about this rash she had on her neck and her cheeks. And then when we were getting ready to go meet this guy, Chris, she asked if she could borrow my friend's makeup. <laughs> and my friend was like, um, no, you have a rash. And she, she just couldn't believe it. She was, like, completely put off by that. Like, I, I'm sure it's nothing. I mean, it's not, it's not contagious or anything. And, again, she's making, like, these, like, snarky, jokey comments about, you know, how my friend is, you know, such a jerk. So by the time we get in the car, and it was my friend is in the passenger seat. Her boyfriend was driving. We were in the back seat. And I'm, like, really kind of ready for Sienna to go and, like, spend some time with this guy because I just want her to go just really annoyed with her at this point and it was kind of weird there was again remember it's 1990 91 so we actually have to use a street map <laughs> to try and find this house and and it was it was something there was something weird about it um, it wasn't really in the neighborhood that she had been described um, there was just kind of some oddness and as she starts to describe some things we start to have these little red flags like she says that once they made this plan he stopped returning her phone calls and then she says, oh, it's so funny. You know, they exchanged pictures. And the picture that he sent is the back of his head. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, this does not sound like a good thing. I could, we could already tell. This is not what she's going to be expecting. And so when we pull into the driveway, we finally find this place. And we pull in and we see this teenage girl who actually looked somewhat similar to Sienna. She kind of had the same build and same like short hairstyle. We weren't surprised. Um, Sienna was really surprised, but we weren't surprised. And so she got out of the car um, and went to go talk to this Chris, who was obviously not who they said they were. Um, and, you know, now, of course, you know, I know that this person was really struggling with their identity, um, was probably just thought that, you know, Sienna wouldn't, wouldn't like her if, if she knew the real, you know, thing. Probably someone who is transgender. And at the time, I remember, I wasn't necessarily, I didn't think anything negative of this person, Chris, other than they had lied. But I, I knew that, you know, where that was coming from. But I really couldn't believe that Sienna hadn't figured it out, you know. And so we waited in the car for a little bit, and they talked, and then Sienna got back in the car. And, um... She didn't really want to talk about it, and we drove back to my friend's house and back down to the freezer. Um, she called her parents, and she, they got her a, an early flight home. She was planning to stay several more days and, you know, and hang out with this guy, but, but she flew home early. And 
you know, I, I felt really bad, and I, I hope that, I mean, I think that I consoled her. I think that, you know, we drove her to the airport the next day. I knew that she was going, it was like, that was a really hard thing, that she had been lied to in this way and catfished, you know, before we even knew this term, catfish. Um, but I was really kind of relieved um, because I could finally, like, just, like, enjoy my friend, enjoy my family and like have my vacation so kind of sent her on her way and we got back to school I didn't really hang out with her much anymore it just it just seemed like we weren't really I don't know we just weren't really in the same circle anymore you know how that is you make friends when you go somewhere new there's like the first friends you make and they're not necessarily the friends that you you know keep through the whole time there and I'd already started to make these other friends even before that, I w I've always been that person who's like have these different groups of friends and like they're not friends, but I'm the person in the middle, kind of goes between. So, I mean, I feel like we were already kind of drifting apart, but you know, I didn't really see her much after that. She graduated, she was older than me, so she was actually graduating already. And so, you know, I, she just kind of became one of those people that I tell a story about this crazy time that she got catfished. And I, it wasn't until um, a school reunion that was over a decade later, so it was 2002, and I actually was back here teaching for the first time at Interlochen, which is kind of crazy. Um, and I hadn't seen a lot of people uh, since they had graduated or I had graduated. And I came face to face with her again. And it was cool, it was great. It was really great to catch up and to see that she was really happy. She was married, things were really good. But she finally got up the nerve to, to ask me, what happened? Like, you stopped being my friend. And I, and I just had to like realize that, you know, even though this person, Chris, had lied to her, I was actually the one who was more dishonest. Like, I had not, I had not been there for her. I hadn't really thought about her perspective. You know, I felt bad for her, but I hadn't really thought about how hard that must have been. And, and you know, of course now as a mature adult, I can understand that a lot of her behavior was coming more from, you know, a probably self-consciousness and self-doubt. And I, I wasn't mature enough at the time to, to confront her and to say, hey, the stuff you're doing is just like, I'm upset because of this. You know, I just dropped her. And I even, this is really tough, but I even, um, I didn't tell her this, but I've had a picture of a group of us. And again, like years later, you know, after she graduated, I had written, like we were joking about her saying some story, and I had written um, the word Satan under her face. And to this day, I just like, wow, I was a terrible, terrible person. Um, so I really appreciate it. I was really grateful that I got a chance to, apologize in some way. I'm not sure that I necessarily really, you know, told her everything, but I did tell her, you know, it, it wasn't you at all. It was totally me. You know, it was me, and yeah, I wasn't a good friend, and um, I'm really sorry about that. And it's just a good reminder um, that sometimes, you know, we can be dishonest even when we don't know we're being dishonest, and I just have to hold myself to be better. Thanks. In our last story, Matt Soderquist and his family realize that they have much to learn from his autistic brother who cannot lie. 
So the elementary school principal, Mr. V, was overly excited to see me. Now, typically, I showed up unannounced and interviewed kids on new investigations. And he wasn't typically that excited to see me when I was there to do that. He would always wonder, or I figured he was probably wondering what terrible thing one of his students had to witness or had experienced. But today, Mr. V said, Matt, I'm so glad you're here. Your brother had a rough morning, and I was hoping you could talk with him. He threatened to burn down the school. Now, for most kids, a threat to burn down the school should be taken seriously. But with Corey, it should be taken absolutely as truth. Not because he's some kind of deranged childhood arsonist, but because Corey has autism. And everything is black and white. And he has never told a lie. So I open the office door, and when Corey sees me, he looks kind of confused. Then he gets very angry, and he starts yelling, and he slams the door in my face and tells me to leave him alone. I turn to Mr. V, and I said, Mr. V, I understand I have a master's degree in clinical social work. And more importantly, I'm his older brother. But that is some mom-level shit right there. <laughs> I blame my mother for my career choice. During the summer, during driver's training, I, I, I'd leave school at the end of the day and walk over to her office at social services for a ride home. And the first day that I was there, I asked if I could go around and talk to some of her coworkers, and she said, absolutely, you can go around and talk to anyone except for Mark. You can't talk to Mark. Mark is a bad influence. So naturally, I went right to Mark's office. He said his job was tracking down these schmucks that abuse kids. And he said that he liked his job so much that if I went and earned my degree, he'd give me his job. <laughs> and five years later, I was hired in that same office, and Mark and I have been coworkers since. Now, Mark always tells the story a little bit different. He said he was supposed to go on and get a better job. But my mom's entry into social work was not quite so linear. Out of high school, she started working for the state hospital, and she got put on the autism wing. And on her first day, they handed her a water bottle and a towel. And they said, anytime any of the residents start having a meltdown, just squirt water on them. And then when they stop, towel them off. My mom lasted about two weeks before she went up to her soup and she said, this is inhumane, I'm not doing this anymore. I want to be assigned to a different wing or I quit. And I like to think that even though she wouldn't have my brother for another 25 years, that that was the start of her advocating for kids with autism. I'd always wanted a brother, but it wasn't until I turned 18 and just after my mom was remarried that she had my brother Corey. As a baby, he was sensitive to loud noises and light. And at three years old, he still wasn't potty trained. He had limited verbal skills. He'd spend hours alone in his room 
with the lights out, organizing his toys by color. His favorite art project was smearing his feces on the wall. My parents tore out the carpet and installed linoleum. Routine trips to the store were an hour-long battle to get in the car and a meltdown at every stop. It took a strain on my mom's marriage. She started staying out late at night. The school initially denied Corey early childhood education and only relented after receiving a letter from our family attorney demanding it. But we started learning about autism. We started incorporating new ways to communicate using pictures. And Corey developed funny quirks. He would open the door for everyone. When you pulled into the driveway, he would come out and open the car door for you and close it for you, and then he would walk around the car three times, just like clockwork, observing everything like it was one of his Hot Wheels toys. He memorized everyone's license plate. By six years old, he had memorized every president and vice president and their terms of office that he'd picked up from the placemat on the dining room table. By age 10, he had dramatically improved. For Corey, things were great, but for the family, things were still very difficult. My third stepdad likes to say that we put the funk in dysfunctional. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the plumber always seems to have a leaky faucet. The mechanic always seems to have a broken down car. And our family of social workers always seem to be falling apart. At one point, I was in the middle of a divorce. My older sister had just married this guy who was in prison for homicide. My younger sister was on the verge of a mental breakdown, and my other sister's drug addiction had gotten to the point where she couldn't even really take care of the four kids that she never wanted in the first place. When we'd give her advice or try to help her out, she would get all defensive and call us a bunch of assholes. At Thanksgiving, she was trying to leave with her kids and they were just throwing a fit and they wouldn't get their shoes on. She started yelling at them and threatened that she was gonna leave them there, which ironically we would think was what they wanted. But Corey came out of his room and he told her, you know what, Liz? You're a really terrible mom. You should quit yelling at your kids and teach them how to tie their shoes. The whole house went silent. Even the kids stopped yelling. Now, if any of us would have done it, she would have ripped our heads off and told us to go to hell. But she knew Corey only speaks the truth. And she started crying. And she, it, it was that kind of crying when you know that you have a hard truth to swallow. And she told Corey, I know I'm a bad mom but I'm doing the best I can. You know, Corey is 16 years old now, and he just started driver's training. He had to get 30 hours of driving, drive time, so that he could sign up and take segment two driver's training. So he's logged about 25 hours, and my mom told him, you know what, Corey, don't worry about it. Just mark down 30 it's only five hours, and we'll take care of it later. And she dropped him off at segment two driver's training. <laughs> 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 so
So about 15 minutes later, she gets a phone call. <laughs> and it's Corey. And, and he says, Mom, can you come pick me up? You know, the teacher said, because I didn't have the 30 hours log, that I couldn't stay in the class, even though the teacher and all the other students really wanted me to stay. And so she came and picked him up at the school. And my mom told me that he was pretty upset. But he wasn't upset at the teacher or the school. He was upset because he thought that my mom was going to be really upset with him that he hadn't lied about his hours on his log. You know, I think the most challenging part about having a brother with a developmental disability isn't how much you have to teach them. The hardest part is how much they have to teach you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, the Workshop Brewing Company, and our MC for the evening, Jeff Smith. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us in April when our theme is PSA, as in Public Service Announcement. Thanks for listening.